This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Showtime on Amazon. Everyone knows Showtime. We're all we're all huge Ray Donovan heads, right? Uh, we've all been to uh, Ray Donovan Con. Well, if you're one of the few people on this planet that doesn't know about the misadventures of the the wacky Ray Donovan, this ad's for you. Showtime includes instant streaming of unlimited access to addictive dramas, hilarious comedies, movies, and so much more. They've got uh, Ray Donovan, the original. Uh, Ray Donovan meets Raymond. That's a spinoff where Ray Donovan joins the cast of Everybody Loves Raymond. And of course, Ray Donovan's Special Victims Unit. Showtime on Amazon is $8.99 a month, but listeners of On Commentary get a seven-day free trial at BoardwalkAudio.com slash Showtime. That's BoardwalkAudio.com slash Showtime. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support artist button and shop on Amazon like Norlywood. We get a little kickback. Our guest this week is David Young. He's worked at College Humor, Late Night, and The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, Carpool Karaoke and Apple Music, and Just Another Immigrant. David's really fun. I've been a fan of his since his College Humor days, and it was great talking to him. So here is David Young. Uh, David, thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. I'm a fan of it, so I'm happy to be here. <laughs> uh, where are you from originally? From Munster, Indiana. Oh, okay. Which is... Uh, in the northwest corner of Indiana, so near Chicago. Right. Oh, people, so like, people assume farm, and it's really like a suburb of Chicago. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is Munster is, is famous? Is it is that where the cheese comes from? No. Okay. That's, I think, well, that's Munster. Munster, The correct okay. yeah. pronunciation, and it's spelled differently. Okay. So that's M-U-E-N-S-T-E-R, mm-hmm. and then... I'm M U N S T E R. But Munster is famous for something, right? I've heard of it. Maybe, maybe not. No, it's right by Gary. Gary, which is which course, is very yeah. famous. Yeah. Uh, but no, Munster is pretty average. Yeah. Small town, a lot of white people. <laughs> were you Were you interested in comedy at a young age? Yeah, I think so. Like I, um, I basically wanted to do some form of comedy, but not really knowing what that meant. For a very long time and like as a high school or middle schooler like I would do little plays with my family and then with my friends and like I watched in high school which probably was inappropriate but like I would watch with my friends like Airplane every weekend religiously like wow. we watched it hundreds of times and knew it backwards and forwards and um, and so yeah I think it was like always a passion of mine. What's your what's your favorite joke from Airplane? Oh my god, um, I have. That's so hard to nail down because it's a movie of just jokes. jokes. Right. Um, but I love. Um, hmm. I mean, have you ever seen a grown man naked? It's right, great. Yeah. Um, I love. I mean, as a kid, this is terrible to admit, but as a kid, the thing that really is a big memory is when they when there's turbulence. And it oh, cuts yeah. the shot of the big boobs <laughs> yeah. shaken. I, my friends and I were like, we. I think we almost secretly just watched the movie to get to that <laughs> point. And then after that, I was like, oh, whatever happens, happens. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, all the entire movie. I like the callbacks to the uh, the uh, announcers at the airport, like they're having the argument. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It's weird that um, there's not more stuff like that today because I feel like that I would know. do well. It seems like it they changed what that what like a parody movie was like it was like scary movie and not another teen movie were like which I love both those movies mm-hmm. but they were like the last of that kind and then it became just like a montage of remember that thing from that movie well now we're gonna do it but worse right. And so, yeah, it's like they've changed what the expectation is of them mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. I, I've heard Angie Tribeca is like similar to that. Yeah. Like that TBS show. I've never seen it though. It's, I, I recommend that. It's yeah. really, if you like those types of shows, I think that Angie Tribeca like does a great job of like honoring that. And mm-hmm. I think it's a really funny show. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so you're interested in comedy. Yes. Did you uh, do like any comedy, like adjacent stuff in high school or anything? I, um, I was, well, I never played a musical instrument, but I was the MC of uh, our Battle of the Bands. And I took that very seriously with a buddy yeah. of mine. And we did like sketches and stuff in between. And then I also did the morning announcements. Oh, wow. And that was like, I treated that like it was five minutes of like a comedy like a morning comedy show mm-hmm. um which i was told repeatedly not to do <laughs> um my big the big moment of rebellion was i uh i ended by saying um i'm barbara walters and this is 2020 this is 2020 i'm barbara walters and this is 2020 and i almost got kicked off for saying that wow that's because that's... they were so they were so angry and shocked that i would do that as an ending um but so I was a scared person and never did it again. But so those things I all like, I tried to take some creative license mm-hmm. with. So you were kind of like a, a class clown of sorts. I don't know. I wouldn't say I was a class clown. I, um, it's such a, it's hard to label myself as that. Right. I just, I liked comedy and I liked making people laugh, but I was definitely not like the loudmouth in class. I was, I was much more, cause I did, this is very lame. I know, but I did magic as a kid. Oh, that's so, awesome. So like uh, you're the first person to, to <laughs> respond with, oh, that's awesome. I, I wish I did magic when I was a kid. Well, I'm telling you, yeah. there were some uh, many hours of spent in a room alone. Um, <laughs> but I, so I use that as like a way to like talk to people more often than not. Like I was not the guy like making remarks to the teacher but like the teacher loved my magic so i would get to perform it in front of the classroom (laughs) so that was kind of my way into like entertaining and being funny i guess what what was your best trick oh man alan you i mean how many how much much time do we have um the i was able to if someone picked a card i could rubber band it in a deck throw it on the ceiling and it would that card would stick whoa outside of the rubber band deck on the ceiling and i'm telling you it was a pretty damn good trick Pete, that would that would definitely impress that impressed me today yeah i, I mean that. just just describing it to you it seems like i've impressed you yeah. so just imagine seeing it and uh so there was that i was big with with uh, card tricks um, but I'm seriously like i my hero growing up was david copperfield mm-hmm. so like i wanted to be a magician through and through and uh i ultimately did not become one <laughs> <laughs> i saw david copperfield in vegas and he did um he did like an insane like phone trick he does like it, it, i saw that when when did you see him like maybe two or three years ago i may have been at that show i was there like two or three years ago and he did like uh the trick with the phone where he's like text this thing yes and then you'll it was kind of like, but that was that didn't seem like much magic. No, it seemed like there's some technology thing to it. Did yeah. you see the one? Was that the one where either a he made thirteen people disappear, or he sent someone to like Hawaii? Oh no, I, th- I think the thirteen people disappear. I think that was that was it. Yeah. Did you hear the backstory with that? No. That he's getting sued by one of the one of the thirteen people at one of the shows because th- I don't know how that trick works, but they basically. Once they disappear, there's like stagehands that frantically rush those people to the next part of where they're supposed to be right. under the stage. But it's like, you know, it's backstage of a show. There's like shit everywhere. And one of them got hurt and oh, is wow. suing uh, like David Copperfield and the show because of that, which I just wow. think is so funny. That is like <laughs> reality butting up against like the magic of David Copperfield. <laughs> He sent someone to Hawaii, though? That, like, was a thing that happened? Yeah, he, like, someone went to, someone had never been to Hawaii, and then he, like, transported them instantly to a beach in Hawaii. So, wow. and I don't know how he did that, but I always loved him. Wow. No matter what anyone says about that man. Yeah, he's just getting in some trouble, I think. Yeah, right? he is. Yeah. Well, we won't talk about that. No, no, that's a darker podcast. <laughs> So uh, you went to, when you went to college, did you like know what you wanted to do? Um, so I went to Syracuse, mm-hmm. and I, for like one semester, I studied um, broadcast journalism because Syracuse is good in that They're, they have a good school for that. But then I, I like I didn't want to be like a newsman, mm-hmm. and I quickly realized like oh I want to write and 
make comedy. So then I shifted to like television and film. But then from that point on, it was like I never looked back and I was in the improv troupe and I was I did a late night show there and stand up comedy. So like I was just doing as much as I possibly could while I was there. Mm-hmm. Did, so did you find like were you like immediately good at, at like improv and sketch? No, no, no. And I also am still not good. Um, (laughs) But I, uh, but my the improv group that I was with had like a lot of great people that I'm still friends with, and I still write with uh, one of the guys from that group. So like the friendships made were awesome, and I think it was just a cool time because all of us like were obsessed with improv. And at the time we were doing short form, and then we took a trip to New York City and saw Mother at UCB, Mm -hmm. and like, we were blown away by long-form improv. Like, it was, like, the craziest, coolest thing we had ever seen. Then we came back and started doing long-form. But it was, like, a bunch of people who knew nothing about it but all acted like we were experts because we had seen that one show. <laughs> so, but what that leads to is just a lot of discovery ourselves. And um, and it was just a blast. We had so much fun. And then stand-up, I imagine if I went back and watched my stand-up, it was a lot of just, like rewording stuff that I loved from other comedians and then doing that. But it was, it was so great. Like I just loved being able to do that as much as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. Did you like being in a uh, film program? Um, I think so. I mean, like the nice thing about college was that like, you could kind of convince yourself that what you're doing matters and that like, it will have long lasting effects when in reality, like, you don't have to go to school and you could be a, a famous filmmaker, but it allowed me to like meet these people and get to like be creative in a very protective environment, which I think is really important. And, you know, getting to like rent cool cameras and make stuff was a really unique experience and one that like you obviously can't do in the real world. You right. have to pay for stuff. So I think uh, I think I liked it, but I'm not. I haven't tricked myself into thinking that like you you need that in order to be successful in this industry, mm-hmm. this cruel, cruel industry. <laughs> when did you uh, get involved with College Humor? So that was like four years out of school. Mm-hmm. So I, when I graduated during my college years, I interned at like The Daily Show and Letterman. Oh. And then so out of school... My first job, I was an assistant to the guys from Stella. Um, oh wow! On their on their comedy, their short lived Comedy Central show. Yeah. So um, I was I was mainly David Wayne's, but I would help with the other guys. And then after that ended, I got an assistant job at the Daily Show. And then while I was doing that, a buddy of mine and I were making web videos. And, like, this was at the time, like, early YouTube days. So, like, that got us some traction and, like, got us our representation and stuff. So we moved out to L.A. for two years, sold a TV show, and then that went nowhere. And then we were kind of like, oh, fuck, what do we do? And College Humor offered us, offered me a job, uh, mainly because they just knew me. Like, Dan Gerwich, who's a very good friend of mine, was like, hey, we have an opening here. You'd be great for it. Why don't you talk to Ricky and Sam Reich? And I did, and they liked my stuff that I had done previously, and they said, why don't you come back to New York and um, you can take a job here. And so I did. Uh, so going back, what's, yes. it, what's it like being like an assistant in a comedy, like being kind of comedy adjacent like that? Um, well, for both Stella and for The Daily Show, I, there are some people that have like immense amounts of confidence and it's just like, oh man, I should be in that writer's room. I was largely just terrified. Like I never wanted to say the wrong thing in front of somebody that I respected greatly. Um, and that was like the Stella guys or, you know, a hilarious writer on the daily show at the time. Um, so like, I am just a person who believes strongly in keeping your head down and doing the work that you're supposed to do. And then if the you know the there's magic there that things work out and they recognize that you have a talent otherwise and want to give you something then great but if you're just that annoying person who wants to jump into it and tell everyone how funny you are then i feel like you're just an annoying person so it was for me i'm basically saying it was easy to put on those blinders and just right. like do the best job i could at the job that i had and then whatever happened after that mm-hmm. was was gravy 
And so during this time, you were making uh, like sketch videos. Yes. So how'd that start? Like, what, what gave you the idea to start doing sketch videos? Well, this was at the time when, like, I'm sure you, Derek Comedy is a name you've heard, and like Dutch West was around, and um, I'm trying to think of other groups. I can't remember. But anyway, it was like, oh, Lonely Island was like the king of all that. And they were like, everyone tried to do what they did. And it it really just came from my friend and I, who was still at NYU at the time, saying like, let's just, we have these ideas, let's just shoot them. Because at that time, there was no, there was no path for like, you do web videos, and then you will become uh, hugely successful and make a lot of money from it. It was just like, a bunch of people who wanted to make these videos, put them somewhere, and hopefully people laughed at them. And that's all we were thinking at the time was, let's just make a bunch and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. And, and why do you think they, like, got attraction? It's a good question. I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, like, there wasn't as much competition at the time, mm-hmm. so maybe that helped. Um, and I don't know... I don't know how familiar you are with like early YouTube days, but like when the goal was always for YouTube or for MySpace was to getting a video featured on the front page. Cause at that point it was like they featured six videos. Mm. And if your video got up there, it was like you would become instantly YouTube famous. So we had a couple of videos back to back that got featured on the front page. Cause they would always have like a slot open for sketch comedy and um, and so once that happened, it was just like we were off to the races. Like our videos really exploded in popularity, and uh, and kind of grew from there. So you you moved out to LA, yes. And uh, you moved out like oh, because you had representation. We had representation, and we had performed at the um, the Aspen Comedy Festival, the oh, okay. HBO Comedy Festival. Uh, we did like a live show. We like took our web videos and kind of created this narrative live show around those videos and then from there we were like top 10 comics to watch and wow yeah this all happened within like four months it was really fucking insane and then we took meetings in la and linked up with mitch herwitz from arrest development wow and he was the executive producer of this show that we ended up selling to tbs and that that i'm like it all happened in four months um, and that was post Arrested Development, right? Or that was yeah, it had just ended. So he was mm-hmm. like, you know, definitely a god to us, but also yeah. this guy that like everyone around town was wondering what he was going to do next. And I think he had a bunch of projects, but we were one of them. So that was really a fascinating journey. Mm-hmm. And then, so we sold that show to TBS and spent a you know probably eight months writing it and developing it and all that stuff. And then the writer strike happened, oh. and that was like. A very depressing uh, moment. There was like a lot of, I guess, because everything was kind of when the writer strike happened. All those projects, almost, like most of those projects that people were developing, were kind of gone, right? Yeah, exactly. Because like, what ended up happening for our project, but I imagine happened everywhere else, was like these networks and what they want. It's so fickle and changes so much that like we, the writer strike. I can't remember how long it was. It was many months, mm-hmm. and I think. When they came, when everyone came out the other end, the networks just wanted something completely different. So the show that we had given them at the beginning of the writer's strike was like nothing even close to that. And I feel like that happened with many, many uh, networks and projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just so depressing. Yeah. Were, were you guys going to star in it? Was it the plan? Yeah. I mean, like it was, we were technically attached to it, but in like all the contracts, it always said, like, you guys are writer-producers, <laughs> and you would also have to audition to play yourselves, yeah. which means that, like, if they didn't like us... And I'm not a very good actor. My The guy that I did it with was, like... Uh, he went to, like, the NYU acting school. He was he wanted to be an actor, and he was very good at it. And I imagine that it would have been, like, the show starring him, but someone else playing me, <laughs> and I would have been behind the scenes. So, I mean, what, what was the show about? It was just called The Joey and David Show, and it was yeah. like this absurd adventure about these two guys who fall into being landlords of a massive apartment complex, <laughs> and they're both, one of them is like, we're, we were our age, we were like 22 and 23, and we were in way over, our, way over our heads, and every episode was like a different adventure with a different tenant. So that was kind <laughs> okay. of it. 
That's fun. It's yeah. kind of like, kind of like a high maintenance sort of thing. Yes, maybe. exactly. Yeah. yeah, we were the original high maintenance yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on HBO. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so how'd you get over like? I mean, being so young, you probably thought like this is gonna be it. This is gonna go. Yes. So how do you get over like that? Uh, you it know, was disappearing? very hard, and it like it. I think it put. Because we also, like, at the same time, we were doing a lot of web content for, like, Warner Brothers. And um, and so that was, like, kind of paying our bills. But everything kind of dried up at the same time. And the TBS thing, it truly was, like, the longest buildup to the quickest no. You know, like, developing it, sending in treatments and outlines in the script. And then, like, one day, just no. So... It was it was really hard and like put a lot of stress on my friendship with my writing partner and like questioning what the hell I was doing and like you said like it happened by the time I was 24 that had all happened so it was kind of this moment of like reassessing uh what I had to do to become like a working writer and realizing that I had none of those tools meaning like a pilot or a screenplay cuz we kind of were like writing this wave of the web and and trying to take a step back and realize, like, okay, if I want to be a working writer, I need a screenplay. So I ended up writing a screenplay and um, writing another pilot. And then luckily, College Humor came around. Mm-hmm. So that kind of allowed me to put those fears aside for a little bit because I had a paying job. And so they, they, uh, they had, like, an opening and you applied? Yeah, they were looking for a writer to come in and specialize in... Because at the time, they were doing a ton of web content for advertisers, and it was kind of falling through the cracks. So they needed, like, a a solid sketch writer to come in and kind of head that up mm-hmm. and be in charge of, like, the ad-sponsored content while also pitching other ideas. So I came in officially as, like, the guy helping with that stuff, mm-hmm. and then I just did other stuff quickly as well. So you were like a branded content. Yes, guy. exactly. I came in yeah. dealing with the branded content. So how do you how do you deal with that when you have like you know I don't know like Old Spice and they want to do like a oh, sketch? Man. Old Spice was a a long running advertiser. Oh, was it really? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was it was challenging because you always you know you don't want to talk down to these advertisers, but they want something and you're trying to explain to them like why that won't work and why. The audience, especially at College Humor, they were, like, super angry when they saw an ad-sponsored video. So, like, you know, explaining that to them without acting like an asshole and trying to say, like, the funnier it is and the more, like, organic and true of a sketch idea it is, then, like, the better it'll be received. Um, And, you know, they would say, yes, yes, totally get that. And then they would uh, instantly change their minds and want it, you know, a product shot of Old Spice and... Um, it was really, really frustrating because we were the ones who needed the money and like there were, there was funny or die. There was uh cracked at the time that might still be a website. There was college humor. So there were so many places they could have gone. And so like, as much as we pushed back on them, but at the end of the day, oh, at the end of the day, we needed to kind of give in and be like, all right, you want that product shot? We'll give you that product shot. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And so were you there uh, like post TV show? I was there post TV show. Yeah. yeah. So I was there. They had just formed or they were forming like the cast with like Dan Streeter, Amir, Jake, Sarah, uh, Jeff Rubin, Pat. And they were trying to form this like, you know, the hardly working series was a thing. They were trying to like create this like. Like the office, but for college humor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's where I came in. And so, what are like the hallmarks of like a good college humor sketch in your mind? Well, I think it varies. I think for hardly working, it was like to be as weird and absurd as you possibly could be, while still like being a recognizable sketch. Because um, there were like no rules for for what a hardly working was. It was just like anything goes inside this office, and those were like usually the most fun to write because there were no rules. And then for like the traditional like viral sketches, it, you know, probably to a fault, it was like trying to tap into some pop culture thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and or like tap into something that's you know in the zeitgeist or something that something that a, a large group of people would click on and recognize by the title oh man i can relate to that and then watch the video have you seen the Nick Weiger? Uh, I love that video. Yeah, I, I imagine that's like how you feel a little bit about. Oh, totally! Yeah. Like that video, and I know that video was like very divisive amongst online creators, right? Which is so stupid. It's like, <laughs> it is so dumb to take it that seriously. But I fucking love that video. It was so good, mm-hmm. and that also, I mean, I think that was a direct reference to a college humor video. Yeah, well, I asked him about it actually oh, really? on the podcast, yeah, yeah. and he, I think he didn't mean it that he didn't. He, maybe he's like now, like years later, talking back. But I don't think he meant it directly. Probably not. Yeah. I mean, like it was. It's so funny that he says that. I've never met. I know Nick from what I've heard is like the nicest guy ever. Yeah. So I can't imagine he was a ma- he was trying to do some massive takedown. Um, but it was very the parallels were very, <laughs> very obvious. But I just I loved it, and that was also after my time at College Humor, so I was able to, like, laugh at it. But I'm sure people inside were like, oh, fuck that. <laughs> we're doing true art here. Uh, one of my favorite things about Hardly Working, and kind of a College Humor thing, I think, in general, was, like, you'd always start with, like, the first, like, line of the sketch would be something, abs- like, like the last, like, the end of a conversation. Yes. That was just absurd. We took pride in, in that. A lot of the times they were written, but also it'd be, like, just we'd ad-lib them. While we were shooting, is, do you remember like a like one that you do you remember one? I'm trying to think. I can't remember any of them, but no, I'm trying to remember them too. There was one it, it, we like will randomly send them to each other, and a lot of the times we'll send each other like old ones that were sponsored, and we'd be like, we were we we are shocked that anyone paid money <laughs> and like a lot of money to get that video made. Um, no, I can't remember one that I. Mm-hmm. Can't remember one. One of my favorites though is one that has Chris, Chris Gethard in it, and he plays Pat's stepdad, and he just keeps producing pizzas to be like the cool stepdad, <laughs> and uh, and I I loved it. Uh, so you, you guys were all working there for like a while. I mean, maybe some, maybe some before you for longer. Yes. Those guys, a lot of those guys were there like years before mm-hmm. me, and then I was there for like two and a half years. But were you there, like at, like, at what point did it seem like everyone was starting to kind of move on to, like, different things? I think it was Sarah who got a guest writing spot on SNL first. And I think that was um, the first moment of, like, oh, yeah, people are going to start leaving this place. Um, I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think out of that show that they did for MTV... I think they all got representation. Mm. So uh, so I think once they all started getting representation, it was like this, not a race to exit, but it was now that there's like real Hollywood people, quote unquote, who can like help them get their next job. So that's like where the conversation started. But then Sarah, I think, was the first one to officially leave. Mm-hmm. So as someone who worked in digital comedy for like two and a half years, you said. Yeah. Uh, obviously, recently, like Cracked has had like major layoffs. Funnier Die has a major yeah, layoff. So sad. What do you think about like digital comedy today going forward? I mean, I it's interesting. Like, I love it because it also like it's where I was and kind of where I like proved to myself that I could actually have a real paying comedy job. Um, it's just a really tough model to like sus- be sustainable because. You need to find a way to pay these people and also have a brand, like a comedy brand that people want to see what you're doing, but at the same time, like kind of sell out because you need to make money somehow. So it's just, it's like, it's a very unforgiving uh, business model. And I don't know if anyone has really cracked it. Like, it seems like Funny or Die has found success in venturing out of the digital space and then kind of just like sprinkling stuff in here and there. Um, and College Humor, I think, is doing the same thing or they're they're trying to find like their next, you know, Adam Ruins Everything is like a TV show that spawned from College Humor. Um, but I think there's still room for great digital comedy. It's just a matter of like, from a business perspective, how do you like keep that going without going bankrupt? Right. And it's I it's just weird because you think that like I don't know I've heard a lot of people blame like like Matt Kleinman I don't know if you know him he famously yeah. like blames Facebook 
for it because it's kind of like taking away clicks and stuff. Yes. I mean, I think all of that is true. I think there's like the, um, you know, there's a video platform on every single site, um, which dilutes like everything else that was previously known as like the site to go to. Like I remember, um, collegehumor.com used to be like the destination you went to and now when you ask most people who go to college humor they know it as a youtube page Mm. which is like it's crazy to me it's like there's just there's so many places to go and those big giants kind of like dominate Mm -hmm. so it's tough do you think like how would like obviously you started out youtube yeah how would you go about starting a youtube group today i have no fucking idea because like i will if you look I also don't know if, like, sketch comedy even exists on YouTube anymore. Like, now it's, like, it's vloggers and it's, like, for lack of a better term, like, shock comedy or, like, doing insane stunts. Like, you know, Logan Paul or or Mm -hmm. his brother, Lucas? Uh, I think Jake. Jake. Sorry. Uh, Lucas sounds kind of right, though. Lucas Paul? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of of a good name. Yeah. Um, uh, Like... Those guys, it, that is so different than what I grew up on in terms of YouTube comedy. Um, so I don't know what I would do. It seems yeah. like the new thing now is like you kind of have to just be yourself and like. But if you're like if you're like some of those people, then you're awful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. I did read a New Yorker article about this uh, Twitch streamer uh-huh. who like this. He's like stopped doing video games and now just Twitch streams his entire life. And then, like, people, like, uh, he's had to move out of apartments because people SWAT him, like, sends, like, the SWAT teams to come in. Like, they say, like, there's a guy with a gun in here. Jesus. And, What's uh, his name? Ice Poseidon, I think. That is, nah, yeah. that's a crazy name. Yeah, I don't think it's his real name. Yeah, but. probably not. <laughs> um, yeah, like, that to me is what, like, I guess, quote, comedy has become. Yeah. Which is, like, a camera on you all t- at all times, which just sounds, I don't know. I have no interest in that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, after College Humor, you went to Jimmy Fallon. Yes. Uh, how'd you get that job? So that was... I just applied. So I, I applied uh, once, turned in a packet, and didn't hear anything. Then submitted a second packet, and apparently I'd gotten close. And then on my third packet, I got an interview and then got hired. Did you... How do you approach writing a packet in general? Um, It's like... It's super, for me, it was very, like, mathematical. Like, I watch, I watched as much as I could of Fallon and tried to, like, I think this is for most, like, comedy writing jobs. Like, you want, unless you're creating your own thing, you want to, like, see what the person who's hiring you likes and does and then try to find a way to do that but also using your own voice so they can, like, they can see what what you find funny, but it still makes sense to them. So I just watched a lot of clips of that show. Cause that show was like two and a half years in to the late, to late night. And I watched as much as I could. And then, um, once I did a packet, I'd had a couple friends read it over and that was kind of it. What was it like going from like college humor to a t- TV writing job? It was terrifying. Yeah. It was so, it was so scary because, you know, as I'm sure many people have said on this podcast, like, or at least for me, it's always a battle of, like, uh, convincing yourself you're not a fraud. So this was, like, the ultimate because I went from this place where, you know, college humor was demanding in, in its own way, but there was not this, like, daily show that you were building up for and the stakes you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to disparage college humor, but it, the stakes were just lower. Right. It was just like, it was a website and we put those those goals and those expectations on us, but it wasn't like there was a network waiting for a show to be delivered. So to go from that to Fallon, um, you just, I was just waiting to be told like, oh, turns out you're not very good, leave. And, you know, it was touch and go at the beginning and terrifying because also there's 13 week contracts which that is a crazy thing to like every 13 weeks potentially get told you're not coming back um, is just really intimidating. So overall I was terrified 
and intimidated by the whole process. Now, is, is it 13-week contracts the entire time, or do, does that change? For I'm sure for the head writer or for a supervising yeah. writer, it might be a little longer, but for the majority of staff writers on late night shows, That's it's, crazy. it's 13 weeks. So every so every 13 weeks, you'd get like a email from your agent with a PDF of a letter that says like, we're picking them up for 13 more weeks. Wow. Yeah. Around like, so in week like 10 of a contract, are you like, I got to, I got to really step up the last two weeks? Yeah. I mean, like it becomes a, and every show is different. Like, um, you know, there was definitely a, a competitive environment at Fallon or at least one where that 13 week deadline was, uh, was a noticeable thing. I think there are some shows that like, it's an assumed you're going to get picked up for at least a year. Um, but Fallon, it was not that way. So if you didn't get a lot of things on, yeah, you would get very nervous as that 13 weeks was approaching. Oh, man, I hated that feeling. <laughs> did you did you like, like, the uh, schedule? Um, yeah. I mean, at the time, I didn't have any kids. I now have mm-hmm. three kids. So doing that schedule now, although all writing jobs have a demanding schedule, but that one specifically was, like, it wasn't as intense as, an, as SNL, but every high-level person from there, including Jimmy, came from SNL. So they kind of, like, embraced that late-night, um, like, the literally late-night schedule of staying later and, and hanging out later. And at times it was great, but then also it was, you know, it would get pretty draining as well. What was the... To you, what's the difference between doing, like, sketch online versus sketch for TV? Um, Well, you could do both, but... Specifically for a late night show, you have a live audience there. So like the the nuance of a of an online comedy sketch, um, and you see it in SNL too. Like when they do a digital short or some online sketch, like it could it could be more of a concept that's not necessarily like laugh out loud every minute, but like you're laughing at the concept or the idea is interesting. And for a live sketch that you're doing in a stu- with a studio audience, you like you need laughs because if there's no laughs, then it basically bombs, and that's the worst feeling in the world. So I think you're trying, you're always trying to write jokes and hard jokes, but I think you're paying closer attention to jokes that will make an audience laugh versus you know lightly chuckle to yourself. Right. And so Fallon uh, got the Tonight Show. Yes. How did things change from like late night to the night show for you? Um, it was a weird time because no one really knew what to expect. And I think a lot of the, the homework for us as writers was like taking what was considered like a weirder sensibility and making it more like family friendly and uh, something that everyone in America could like. Um, because it was this Tonight Show brand and like Late Night was notoriously a weirder brand. Um, so it was it was kind of just like pitching ideas and being told whether or not the higher-ups accepted that as a more universal sketch or if it was too weird for Late Night. So mm. a lot of the initial notes were like, eh, it's too Late Nighty. And um, ultimately, who even knows what that really means? Right. Because like you can... When the show was 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 doing great things, and it's still doing a lot of great things, but like when we came out and did the Tonight Show, people really responded well to it. So that kind of gave us the flexibility to try some weirder stuff in the Tonight Show slot. And would you mostly do kind of like um, just sketches stuff, or would you like write to the segments a lot too? Um, well, I was on the sketch side with Arthur, mm-hmm. so like we were. We were basically tasked with pitching celebrity ideas, but then also coming up with desk pieces. And then it was called a gang right. So gang rights were like everyone chipped in and wrote jokes for a a particular segment, whether it's thank you notes or pros and cons or whatever it may be. Did did working with celebrities kind of feel similar to working with uh, brands back in the yeah it, yeah, it did. And it's, you know, like I, my theory about, sketch comedy online is that like the late night world kind of hurt it like I wouldn't say killed it because it's still around but I think what Jimmy Fallon did was he told famous people like 
you could come on my show and in 15 minutes we could do either a game or a sketch and it'll go viral and you don't have to go do another sketch for three hours for College Humor or Fun or Die. So I think like his brand of late night really hurt digital comedy because it gave, because of what I think what ends up happening is, you know, a celebrity does a late night show to, to do some PR for some movie or TV show they're doing. But that was also what they were doing for college humor. It was to like publicize something. So if you were able to do that in 15 minutes, as opposed to three hours to shoot a sketch, I think they would just choose the Fallon stuff. Right. Yeah. Cause one's like filming you know, with a bunch of people you don't like know exactly, and one just hanging out with Jimmy Fallon like, exactly. on TV. Yeah, yeah. so I, I didn't think about that. That's interesting. I, so I think that I think that had like a massive effect, negatively so, on online sketch comedy. It is just my theory. Mm-hmm. I could be entirely wrong, but I don't know. I feel like there's something to that. Yeah, it, it makes sense because like uh, like Funny or Die, that's like their that was like their bread and butter. Totally. Was like celebrities. And it, when I was at College Humor, it was like. It was the race to get celebrities between Funny or Die and College Humor. And like then that I think that slowly dried up. And I really believe it's because it's like the rise of celebrity sketches. But to answer your earlier question, working with celebrities, it was it wasn't as intense as an ad person because like we most of the celebrities I worked with and by most I mean like 99.9% of them were so appreciative and nice and happy that like we created the sketch for them and uh, built a set for them and did everything for them to basically walk onto set, do their thing and then leave that like they didn't have that many demands. And if they did, it was like throwing out an idea here or there. But, you know, by the time we got there on set, like Jimmy had given his notes, a celebrity had given their notes and, it was for the most part pretty smooth, mm-hmm. which is very unlike uh, the ad right, experience. Right. Yes. Uh, so you worked on late night for four years, F- almost five. Almost five. Yeah. How did how did late night change over just those five years, if well, at all? Well, the late night to tonight show thing that was a a very that was a difference that you could feel in like ideas that Jimmy was interested in um, as the host of the Tonight Show versus host of the late night show. Um, and I think like any comedy job you're at for a long time, um, you both the head writer and Jimmy like expect more and it takes a lot more to surprise them because they've seen like every version of every idea ever. But then you as a writer are also trying to like surprise yourself. And I think the longer you're at a, at a show, that becomes the biggest challenge because like if you're just, if you're just churning out things that you know will make it to air or things that like don't make you laugh ever, which obviously to keep a comedy writing job, you, you need to do that to a certain extent because you're trying to fill a quota, um, and you're not always feeling as funny as you possibly can, but you really need to, you need to like keep yourself laughing because if not, then I don't know, it sounds miserable. Right. Yeah. What's, what's something that surprised you at working in late night? Um, oh, that's a, uh, I mean, I think the intensity of it was, um, was always surprising. And I think the intense, like the way that popped up and whether that means like, you know, we sent in a first round of jokes and Jimmy didn't like them and we have to do another round within an hour or, um, we need new celebrity ideas within an hour. Like yeah, that intensity of like not allowing your brain to say that you were done ever was a, um, that was a muscle that I had to learn mm. because you can never rest on what you did yesterday because there was always another show. And I know people say that about late night, but when you're in it, it's like, there's just no, you have no room to stop because if you don't, like you said, if t- at 10 weeks, if you look back in the last three or four weeks, you've given them nothing. It's kind of like, well, let's bring in a new guy and see what they could give us. And, and what what prompted you to leave uh, Fallon when you did? So it was just one of those times where I, um, I knew that I wanted to get into narrative, and I feel I felt like I had 
you know, done everything that I wanted to do at Fatwin and I loved it there. And it was like, you know, Jimmy and, and Miles and, and the executive producers like gave me my first opportunity. So I felt, you know, I felt very close to them in that way, but I was just ready to try something new. And I wasn't sure what that was. I ended up taking a, a head writing job out here and, um, and, and I figured both, I was ready to try something new. I wanted to come out to come out to LA, but I needed like a reason. Cause at that point I had two kids. Um, I couldn't just be like the starving artist. And so I came out here and, and moved here with my family mm-hmm. and took the job. And that was at a carpool. Karaoke. Yeah. So I was, I'm the head writer of the Apple version of carpool karaoke, mm-hmm. which like, you know, I basically told my agents, like, I want to do something, give me some opportunities. And when this came across, my desk I was like I don't know about that like I don't it's just another version of a late night thing but then when they gave me the head writing title I was like you know what I'll give it a shot I don't know I I don't know what it can lead to I don't know what it's going to mean but I was just excited to try something new so I decided to take it and it also was like a a paid excuse to move to LA Uh, and it turns out it's been it's been a lot of fun like it it basically has taken all the skills that I learned from college humor and Fallon pitching a lot of ideas for celebrities, and uh, and now I get to be in charge of like a writer's room, which has been really fun. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what kind of jokes are you like writing uh, for that? So it is a, um, so our version of the show, which is on Apple, basically features two different celebrities every episode. So um, they come in. And because we don't have, like, a host, we provide them with, like, in-car bits and out-of-car sketches. It's essentially like a late-night show in a car with two hosts. But because they don't know... Oh, the celebrities are the... Like, the two celebrities are the hosts. Yes. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, so, like, we did a show... We just did a show with Weird Al and Lonely Island. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, like, that was basically, as the writers, we are, like, pitching them ideas that we think would resonate with them and be in their voice and, you know, pitching them conversation topics. But largely it's like, here's an in-car bit that you would see Jimmy do at the desk for at the, at the tonight show or, you know, some sketch um, or some like prank segment, but it's kind of just like giving them enough material to feel comfortable to be like a host of a show. Mm-hmm. But we've had, we've had like, we did one with LeBron James. We did one with Will Smith, um, Jason Sudeikis and the Muppets, which was fun. Yeah. Um, we did. We just did Snoop Dogg and Matthew McConaughey. So it's been it's been fun to like um, to kind of help take what is a very popular segment and evolve it into something that um, doesn't need James to like host. Mm-hmm. And what's it like being like a head writer of a room and leading a room? It's cool. I mean, like. I have fun, um, like, my ego isn't, like, I love being the boss, but it is fun to, like, challenge myself to be a boss and, like, help uh, develop ideas and and help encourage the other writers to, like, find the voice of the show. And then also, like, being in the pitch meetings and pitching the ideas and being, like, the face of the writers. Um, It's just, it's a really fun challenge. And I'm not always great at it but i think it's like a it's a fun thing to um to like force yourself given the opportunity to like force myself to like be that be a leader because i think at fallon um you know it was it was kind of it wasn't easy but like you had a very convenient person to hide behind Mm -hmm. which was miles the head writer and then the two supervising writers but in this new role like i'm not hiding behind anyone it's like it's on me to present these ideas and and support the writers and and come up with the best ideas that I think would work the best for the celebrities. And so so what is the best way to pitch a celebrity, especially when it's like you're doing the pitching, I imagine. Yes. So what's the best way you do to do that? Um, I have found the the best version of it is like finding a way to pitch it in the most concise and clean way possible. And then if it seems like they understand it, like get into the specifics when it's actually happening because like mm. we'll we've pitched like we've done things that are fully written 
But then we'll do things that are more like concept driven, like a hidden camera thing where it's them going in and doing the large, basically improvising things. Um, for the written sketches, it's easy to be like, read this sketch. If you're good with it, we're good with it. But then if it's just like a concept, it's my motto is like less is more. Like just get in, get out. And if they have questions and they seem interested, answer those questions and it's great. But if not, and they are like, cool, then go with that cool. Yeah. Because otherwise you get really into the weeds of things. And then, you know, when you're pitching an idea to a celebrity, there's like reps standing there and all they care about is that their client looks good and isn't confused. And so if you start giving so many details that they are confused, it's like, it's bad for everyone. Is it is it different when you're pitching like someone who's more known for comedy? Well, it's more intimidating for sure. Right. Like the Weird Al Lonely Island, um, that was that was intimidating just because I'm such a huge fan of both of theirs. Um, but l- basically, the way it works is you send them stuff um, beforehand, and they kind of approve it via email. And if they don't like anything, you send them new ideas. But you get kind of an idea of what they like beforehand and then we can like so when i'm going in to pitch them it's not like a blind pitch um because that would be terrifying um but but yeah when you have someone who does comedy it's it's definitely more intimidating uh and you just worked on the new showtime show just another immigrant yes Uh, how did that job happen that was so the director that they brought on to carpool uh was this guy ben green who's from england and we just uh hit it off instantly and he and the other executive producer, this guy Eric Pankowski, they they sold the show because um, Ben did a show with Ramesh, who's a star of Just Another Immigrant, um, in England called Asian Provocateur. And um, they came up with a new concept that was Just Another Immigrant. And then they sold it to Showtime that went straight to series. And Ben just asked me to come on and help them basically write the show. And uh, and so that's what I did. And so and so this was a like a, a docu series. So it's- yeah, it was an interesting con- it was an interesting hybrid. It was like um, we shot it um, like the tagline for the show was a mostly true comedy, mm-hmm. and it was it was shot very similarly to the way Curb is shot. Like we basically outlined for each episode like ten to fifteen page outlines, and then uh, um, they would. Uh, we'd go out and shoot it and then we'd adjust on the fly depending on how things were going because there was like a lot of real stuff that happened um, but also a ton of completely fake things. Mm -hmm. More fake than real Mm -hmm. but we wanted to make the illusion, create the illusion that it was all real. And so you're you're credited with all 10 episodes. Yeah, that, (laughs) which is very funny and I feel very bad about but it's a... (laughs) I think it was some WGA thing. Like, if you're not in the WGA, I could be totally fucking this up now. But I believe if you're not in the WGA, you can't be credited as a writer on a TV uh, show. Um, and the show is written with these other guys, but they're all from England or they're like a producer over here. So they're not in the WGA. So uh, I I look like I am this like incredible writer who went away to a cabin and came back with a perfectly like, written true series. detective yeah exactly yeah. which it is so not the case but it does it does look very funny and my parents are very proud of it <laughs> so so the show's obviously about um about race yeah and it's yeah. about uh yeah it's about race about like an Im- immigration yes. not immigration but somebody coming to america yes. which is immigration i guess yeah. it is it is i think precisely what immigration <laughs> yeah. is so how do you how do you approach writing for that show when you're like a, a white guy uh, well, I listen to Ram a lot mm-hmm. and he has like a lot of experiences. Um, but it's, it's interesting. We found that like when we expected there to be, when we would shoot something and we expected there to be some element of race in it, we'd get nothing. Mm. But then when we weren't thinking about that, we'd get some response that like we were blown away by. Like in the first episode, this taxi cab driver is driving Ram to check out the Greek theater where he's performing. And he was the nicest guy ever, but he made a lot of comments about his expectations of who Ram is and how he was going to sound. And like, we didn't prepare for that whatsoever. I mean, Ram is hilarious, so he was great with it. But like, that's one of those situations where 
we didn't think it was going to happen that way, and then it just did. Um, but a lot of like this speci- the specifics of being a Sri Lankan man in America came from Ram, mm. uh, because I am not a Sri Lankan man, <laughs> nor am I from England. So I couldn't really help in that regard. Would you like to work like in the kind of like half reality, half comedy thing again? You know, maybe. I think it just, it totally depends. Like I have learned from doing this show and doing Carpool, like I'm very open to uh, opportunities that may not seem, uh, you know, like the traditional like getting staffed on a on a network sitcom used to be like the goal, the number one goal for me. But now seeing how many opportunities there are and how varied they are, I'm kind of like, I'm open to whatever whatever my agents or managers or friends throw at me and be like, hey, I think you'd be good at this. Try it out. Because I, you never know where that's going to lead. Like for Carpool, that's how I met Ben and Eric. And then they brought me on to this other show. And, um, and then from there, we're developing some other stuff. It's just like. I, I'm kind of open to things because I think in this war, in this very fickle industry, you kind of have to be. If you only say, like, I'm only going to be staffed on a network show, I think you're going to be uh, disappointed more often than not. So what would, what would you like to be doing next, though, having said all that? Yes. <laughs> um, I want to work for a network sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I would love to sell my own show. Um, I'd love to sell a movie. I mean, I think the dream is still as traditional as it gets for a comedy writer. Like I just want to, I would love to be in charge of something and hire my friends and get to hang out and write a show that we all are passionate about. Um, I do want to get into a writer's room of some capacity, like um, either a network show or a cable show just to like learn from, there's so many great showrunners out there now and comedy people and many you have interviewed that I would love to like watch them work and learn how to like write a, you know, I've written pilots, but to like write a full season of a fully scripted TV show, right. I think would be great to to see happen. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we're gonna wrap up. Cool. Uh, with you giving your thoughts on a sketch idea I have. Okay. So this um this would have to be animated, probably. An animated. Okay. So this is animated. So imagine that. Imagine cartoon. I'm in the cartoon world. Yeah, Robert Crumb drawing it. Yeah, oh wow. No, 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 no. no. Okay. <laughs> um, so this would be like a Transformers parody sketch. Now Transformers. I didn't look up Transformers when I thought of this, but it's a car that transforms into a bigger robot, right? Yes. Okay. Well, so. it's a. I guess they go both ways. The robot transforms into the car, right. and the car transforms. Yes. So okay, so this would be okay. So this would be the car You're on point so far. Yeah. So the car would transform into the robot, but it would all it would do is just talk about you two and how much he loves you two and just facts about you two. <laughs> so just be like, you know, Bono's real name is Paul Houston, but he'd be like a little robot. And so he wouldn't like fight. He would just be like talking about. He's you obsessed too. with you too. Obsessed with you too. Yeah. Um. So, I think it's. I mean, the, that initial idea I think is really funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the question: Why does that? I guess why? Yeah. Is he? He so him transforming? Can he talk about you too as the car, or is it only when he turns into the robot? Only when he turns into the robot. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, we need you, like, whatever, like, Bumblebee or whatever. Yeah. And then he turns into the the robot. He's like, all right, well, let's talk about you, too, I guess. Yeah. I, I think it could be funny. I yeah. think if it's, like, if you put that Transformer into a some type of intense situation right. where they, like, need to fight. And then they all transform. And then he transforms and is only talking about uh, some U2 concert uh, mm-hmm. in Ireland. Um and he slows everything down or because of him, one of his Transformer friends gets killed or destroyed. Yeah. Uh, I think it could be funny. Yeah. I think it's one of those ideas where there's like just like a, a, a grain there. I don't know how to like move on for like move, move like expand it. Yes. Well, I think if you lean into that yeah. and make it, if, if you just go all in on he's obsessed with you too yeah, yeah. and then keep the, sh- the sketch very short right you can like do a few beats of that and then be out yeah um and yeah i mean maybe he could transform into bono at the end yeah the reveal is that the transform that bono has been a transformer his whole his he, whole career he's just a narcissist <laughs> just wants to talk about himself yeah exactly uh all right cool uh, yeah uh, anything you want to plug um mm, 
I just finished The Sinner on Netflix. Oh, the Jessica Biel? Yeah. Is it good? I really enjoyed it. And I'm sure. watching Broadchurch now. So I have nothing to do with those shows. Yeah. Uh, but you guys should watch them if you... All right, check out the Sinner and Broadchurch. <laughs> yeah, other other than that, I'm still on Carpool, and uh, you can watch those too if you want on Apple. All right, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.